The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm connecting with one of my closest friends and favorite people on the planet, Monique Gray-Smith. Orca Books has recently published Monique's newest book. It's called Speaking Our Truth, A Journey of Reconciliation. It's a book for middle year students that makes up for the lack of accurate representation in the education system of the history and legacy of residential schools in Canada. A beautifully designed full-color textbook, its pages are filled with pictures, stories, quotes, lessons, and questions for reflection. So readers of all ages can learn about the lives of survivors and listen to allies who are putting the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission into action. Of course, most of the teachers in our education system haven't learned this history either, so the format of the book makes it easy for adults who might need more time to process and unlearn to make this journey in small, digestible pieces. Monique and I met at my office on a really stormy day on Lekwungen Territory here in Victoria, BC. So Monique, it's you and me and our cups of tea and the candle burning and it's quite stormy outside. Yes. Yes, and I have a friendly birch tree <laughs> who's right outside my window at my office and this, um, yeah, this is known to happen with clients. I have to tell them, oh, the birch is tapping on the window. But today the birch is actually like clawing to get <laughs> in. Right. Yeah. So we might hear that at some point in, the, in our interview. But it sort of seems sometimes almost like it's sweeping stuff away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite cleansing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's sort of similar to the Coast Salish tradition of, instead of smudge, right? Like the, the brushing off of cedar. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a nice way of thinking of it. We're being cleansed by Mr. Birch out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about speaking our Mm. truth. You know, I feel very privileged to have um, walked the path sort of behind you a little bit on that, just like watching and observing your creative process. Uh, Before we get into that part, can you just introduce yourself and um, let, let the listeners know, like, what identities do you lead with? Mm, thank you. Well, my English name is Monique, and my traditional name is Mystique Washkikos. And I received that name when I was in treatment as part of my recovery from alcoholism over 25 years ago. And when translated from Cree to English, it means little drum. And I am a mother of 14-year-old twins, and a wife, and a daughter, and a sister, a visitor on this beautiful Lekwungen territory and have been for many years now and feel very grateful to live here and work here and write here and especially to raise my children here. We, yeah, that was hello. the birch saying Yeah, yes. birch is like, yeah, hello. I acknowledge that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I really do believe, you know, here is one of the most beautiful places on the earth. There's so many beautiful places, but my spirit really resonates here. I think part of it's the water, but also the land and those who have been the the caretakers of this land since time immemorial have done a beautiful job making it a sacred space for us to live on now. 
and for me to write especially. Mm. And when I when I think about it, there are so many profound writers here. Oh yeah. It is a real mecca for people to come and let the stories come through them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So true. Can you tell us about Speaking Our Truth then mm-hmm. and um, how that project came about? I um I was sitting at my dinner table writing and working and I don't know why I was at the dinner table, not at my office. And this email notification came across, and it was from Andrew Woolrich, who's a publisher at Orca Book Publishing. And the subject line was an idea. And I love ideas because it's like there's possibility, there's hope, there's, yeah, it's like opening the door to great mystery. So I read it right away, and it was that he had been at Dr. Marie Wilson's talk in Winnipeg about what can publishers do in regards to continuing the journey of reconciliation. And he really took that to heart. And that's one of the reasons that even I was willing to go and talk to them because I thought if she laid out a call to action and he's picked it up, Hmm. then I at least deserve to give him the respect to go and hear. Even though everything in my body was saying, no, I don't want to write that book. And part of why I knew I didn't want to write the book was because I knew it would require immense courage on my behalf, as well as I wasn't sure I had the inner strength mm-hmm. to write a book about history that has been so traumatic for Indigenous people for generations, based on legislation. That's the piece I think that we have to remember, that, that what has happened in our country that has been harmed to Indigenous people and that has been harmed to the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people has been a direct result of relationships. And then, of course, personalities and policies, and and then personalities and perspectives and racism, all that then adds to Mm -hmm. those policies and legislation. Uh But we have to remember that, you know, residential schools, Indian residential schools in our country and known in the United States as boarding schools, are le- they were legislation. Mm-hmm. They were not a choice of families. Mm-hmm. They were a legislated decision for generations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really integral for us to keep in mind. These schools were open from 1831, the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario being one of the first ones, and the last ones closing in 1996. Mm-hmm. After I graduated high school, you know, so there are people younger than I am who are residential school survivors. Yeah, so I often use this example that in 1996, if a child was in kindergarten, they would be 26 today. Mm-hmm. You know, we're recording this in fall of 2017, so they'd be 26, mm-hmm. maybe 25, depending on their birthdays. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we're talking about a long time ago. Mm-hmm. This, this future, or pardon me, this history, is really like one breath behind us. Mm-hmm. And so it calls on us to then think about what kind of future do we want to make sure that our young people and those that haven't yet been born experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, I remember, you know, we're in circle together. I remember how much of a toll this took on you physically. Mm-hmm. And um, I, would, I would love it if you would just describe a little bit about what it was like for you physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. what it was like for your family, because this this was the result of a collaboration of many people, but also many people had to hold space for you to be able to do this mm-hmm. work, because it's not just 
regurgitating history. It's not just, I mean, these are real people and real lives and they are running through your body and your veins and your blood today. Mm -hmm. This is not historic, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very present day. So would you be willing to talk Mm -hmm. about that? Well, I think the one day when I think about what it was like to write this book, that I had read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's um, reports, but I had never, like, often, to be honest, when I open a book, I look at the back page and then kind of flip through and then start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had never, with those reports, actually sat down and read from the very front page to the very back. Once I had done my backwards flip, then I started right at the chapter one. And so I thought, okay, I need to, this time, sit down differently. So I opened up the survivor speak, and I opened to the first page, and it says copyright. And it says there is no copyright. Survivors give freedom of this book to be used in any way possible. And that sent me to the ground, because I was like, here again are the survivors sharing with us their experiences that some minds could never even conceive could happen to children in an in a institution. And yet they were saying, they're just giving it away again. Mm-hmm. They're sharing it with us so that we make sure it never happens again. <clears throat> and I remember literally sitting on the floor and I was sobbing. And I was nervous because I thought, I'm crying so loudly that the people upstairs might come down because they might be worried about me. <laughs> So I got myself together after a little bit, and I called the publisher. And a woman there I had become friends with, her name is Dale, and I asked to speak to her, and I just, I can't write this book, Dale. Like, you have to find somebody else. I can't do it. And she's like, just give me five minutes, Monique. Don't leave. I will call you right back. <laughs> and she um, went into Ruth Linka, who's one of the publishers, and they brought in the editor, and then they called me back. And through their listening and through their asking a few questions, over time I was able to get back in my chair and start writing. But that that day really stands out for me so profoundly. And there were many times when I would finish my day of writing and I'd go home for dinner and I would have to choke back my tears because I had already shed so many tears at our table about what I was writing that I thought, I'm not able to come home every single day and cry at dinner because... It really isn't well for my family for me to do that. But what I would be thinking, because the twins, my twins were 12 then, was, you know, the privilege, really, that I have as an Indigenous woman in this country to be sitting at the dinner table with my children. Mm. When one generation previously, that would not be the reality Mm -hmm. in some parts of our country where the schools were still open. I wouldn't be able to hug them, I wouldn't be able to laugh at them, I wouldn't be able to be mad at them, I wouldn't be able to have the tough conversation. All of those things were gone. That sacred responsibility. But they were my grounding place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would go home from writing really early and just be in our house when nobody was home. And I would smudge and I would light a candle and I would walk through our kids' bedrooms and think, Wow, how blessed am I? And so it was it was without question the most difficult thing I've done in my <clears throat> um, I wouldn't say my life, I think sobering up has been the most difficult thing I've ever done. 
but it would definitely be a close second. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need Kleenex. Yes. <laughs> also because I felt this immense responsibility, thank you, to to hold stories and to share the stories in a sacred way. And in a way that when people read them, they could hear them. Which I found very difficult because the stories aren't easy to read. And also the voices in there. So there's the voices of the survivors and um, two voices specifically of young people who have grown up with parents who uh, are survivors of residential schools and they talk very explicitly about what their life was like as children growing up in those homes. And then I interviewed elders from across the country and young people. And I think those voices of the young people in the book are very powerful because they're like the northern stars for us. They're like, mm-hmm. here's here's how we can keep going. Mm-hmm. Here's how we can move forward. Mm-hmm. And for me, some days that's what I would do. I'd go back to rereading those interviews with those young people because I just needed a grounding place to, to keep writing from mm-hmm. and to have hope. And the way that you've structured the book I, I actually remember when you described how you were going to do it I, I you know part of me is pretty um uh is still very much in conflict with my settler heritage um you know just feeling a lot of anger and you know bitterness mm-hmm. and stuff um and I remember you describing the structure of the book and the inspiration that you had for for it and as so many times I have felt um, like when I uh, attended the, the TRC um, testimony in Victoria and just lots of many like many other times I've thought um, this person is being more generous than we deserve <laughs> you know <laughs> this is such a beautiful framework to help mm. people come to understand oh, Birch is like with me on this one I think um, it's a beautiful framework to help people uh, understand and move through any inner resistance mm. or um, any difficulty reconciling with the settler within, as they say. So can you just describe a bit of um, how you decided to structure the, the book and um, what what it means to you? Why, I mean, anybody who knows you knows that it's because you're, you're about love. <laughs> you have your own podcast, Love is Medicine. Um, but, I, yeah, could you just describe a little bit about um, how you structured the book? Mm-hmm. Well, I knew initially that I wanted to weave some of our teachings or some of the teachings I've received into the book in ways that were very subtle. So there's four chapters based on the teachings of four, right? Four seasons, all of those elements of fours. So the first chapter is really a welcome to the journey. And, and sharing with the reader what's the difference between a holiday and a journey and what do you need to pack on this journey of reconciliation. Pardon me. And then the last three chapters, I knew I needed a metaphor and, I, and it didn't feel right for me to use the metaphor of a canoe. I needed something that resonated in a different way with me. The canoe came because of a journey, right? Thinking in that way. But I chose the metaphor of a braid of sweetgrass because I've been taught that we have four sacred medicines, tobacco, cedar, sage, and sweetgrass. 
And that sage, when we smudge, when we clean our spirit and when we clean a space, that sage removes negativity, removes anything that doesn't belong anymore. And then often we'll smudge with sweetgrass to refill with positivity and refill what now belongs in an energetic and in a spiritual way. And I thought that's what we need as a country is to refill what has now been taken apart. And really, I think that's what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has done is really opened up and taken apart history for people to look at it in new ways, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Because there are many survivors and their families who say, I never, ever talked about this mm-hmm. to my wife or to my children. Mm-hmm. And then their children hear it for the first time at the, at the hearings. Mm-hmm. And so the, the first chapter that is part of that Burrito Sweetgrass, the first strand, is the chapter, Where Have We Come From? And it's based on the teaching of honesty. Mm-hmm. And it tells Canada's history. Um, specifically from the Royal Proclamation uh, all the way through to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People with a focus on residential schools. And you said several times that this is not Indigenous history, this is Canadian history. This is Canadian history. Mm -hmm. This is such an important resource that I hope every single middle school in our country, we'll get every library, every you know community center that has a drop-in or like take a book, leave a book mm-hmm. kind of stuff. This needs to be there because um, anybody who is over the age of like 10 in this country has probably never been taught this. Mm-hmm. And this is Canadian history. Canadian history. That's why even though the book is being marketed for 9 to 16, I think it's for 9 to 90 year olds mm-hmm. because we have generations who didn't learn this in school and who also have not had these conversations around the dinner table with mm-hmm. their families. So we have generations who are just coming to this history. And sometimes when you come to history, one that you might not have ever heard of, and history that might not be gentle, how it's shared with you needs to be gentle so you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the history, some Canadians will go, no, that could have never happened here. Mm-hmm. So if it comes in a harsh way, then it just sort of adds fuel to that fire. That's why this this braid of sweetgrass, I think, was so important because it's a gentle way of sharing this information. Mm-hmm. So that's that chapter, and it's quite thick. It's a big chapter. And on the sides of the pages are little um, circles sometimes with reflective questions, lots of images to slowly unpack it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because there have been two times in my life when elders have said to me, you know, I've had a positive experience. Mm-hmm. at residential schools. So I knew that that voice also had to be included in there. Mm-hmm. And originally, it was at the very end of the chapter. And a friend of mine, Margot D'Arcangelo, who helped me with a bit of the book and some of the research, she said, I don't think it belongs at the end of the chapter. Because mm-hmm. I was going back and forth. Do I put it first? or I put it at the end? And she said, if you put it at the end, it's sort of like you're putting a little bow and tidying right. everything up. It's like, okay, but everything was okay in the end. Right. And that feedback was immensely valuable for me. And so I chose to put it at the beginning. And it doesn't get much time in the Mm -hmm. book, but it is there Mm -hmm. to honor those who did have a different experience than the majority of students. Mm -hmm. And there is one uh, high-profile Canadian senator who uh, likes to lead, put it in the middle and at the end Mm -hmm. of her (laughs) cultural narrative, uh, which um, it would be lovely if Margot would have a chat with her. 
It'd be lovely. <laughs> strand of so then the, thank you the second strand then is where do we stand today and it's of uh, the teaching of love mm-hmm. and it majorly focuses on the journey of the truth and reconciliation commission how did it come about what was their mandate where were the seven national hearings held how many people did they hear from almost seven thousand people bared witness or told their story pardon me the honorary witnesses so sheila rogers from the cbc is an honorary witness is in there Dr. Marie Wilson, from one of the, who is one of the three Truth and Reconciliation Commissioners, um, I met with her, and she's in there really profoundly. And that was a difficult piece, was because when the first draft was done, the feedback was I had to cut 20,000 words. And so there were pieces like, you know, my interview with Dr. Marie Wilson was six pages, single-spaced. Mm-hmm. And in there, I think it's probably about a quarter of a page. Wow. Could you release that, maybe? I know. As a blog post, a transcript? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would love to be a fly on the wall. So, something, I know that those other 20,000 words, something needs to be done with them. Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure what yet. Mm. So that's that chapter, is where do we stand today? And in there are the elders' voices and the youth voices mm. about what does reconciliation mean to you? And then, and those youth voices, I interviewed 10 young people from across Canada and included their voices. And then the final strand, the final chapter, is where do we go from here? And it's based on the teachings of kindness and reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was really inclu- important to include reciprocity. Because if we look at history, the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people have not always been reciprocal. And a big part of that, for sure, has been, you know, facilitated by the legislation and the policies and the stereotypes and the myths that have come from all of that. But it's time for a change. It's time for those relationships to be righted. How, how do you define reciprocity? What, what would that look like in the next few years? Well, when I think about that, there was an example of a gentleman who owned a ranch up near Williams Lake, and his name is eluding me. And when it was time for him to retire, I think it was, you're nodding your head, so maybe you were like 18 one. months ago or a yeah. year ago, mm-hmm. he gifted that land back to the nation whose land he was on. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is an example of a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. He knew in his heart and his mind that that land did not belong to him, even though you know the paper showed he owned it. He knew that he was not the one to be caretaking for that land anymore, nor his family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think actually repatriation of land is such an important um, aspect of reconciliation that we do need to start sort of seeding into the conversation. And there's, um, you know, listeners of the podcast know that I've referred a number of times to decolonization is not an, a metaphor. Uh, I believe that's Tuck and Wang. Um, excellent paper but basically they say don't use decolonize as in like decolonize your yoga because it's not a metaphor it actually means no you repatriate land and you give rights and um, sovereignty back to people that's Mm -hmm. what decolonization really means so I, I, I try really hard to avoid using the term decolonization unless I'm talking about all of that mm-hmm. and um, it's been very interesting to talk to even like pretty progressive uh, folks like Ruben and I have talked about that I said you know if anything happens to you then I would be the inheritor inheritrix of his parents land and I was like just so you know it's probably going back to the, <laughs> the, the nation and he's like you know that's that's fine don't tell my parents because of right. course they, <laughs> they you know feel like they're real homesteaders mm-hmm. but I mean that's I think something that we need to start to um 
consider and a lot of people especially kind of you know hey if you live in um in a western culture property ownership is just kind of a given that that's a mm-hmm. thing you do but that's not reciprocal if we're trying to decolonize and unpack so mm-hmm. yeah i think it's important um to bring that up yeah um i'm very curious about what you would like to see um, happen as a result of this book? Like, what are your wildest dreams for speaking our truth? Mm. Mm. I don't know, honestly, if I've allowed myself to even go there Mm. because it's only been out for not quite two months. And I think, honestly, when the first... Uh, advanced reading copies came I was like oh that looks nice and then I just put it away (laughs) I didn't even sit down and read it I didn't really look through it because I felt like the writing of that book um, really took me to a space in my life that I never really want to go to again Mm. and so when I first saw it I was like oh I go back there and I can feel the pain in my lungs. Mm-hmm. I can feel almost the dispiritedness that happened. And so I don't know, this was my question when I interviewed Dr. Marie Wilson as one of the commissioners, like, how did you take care of yourself? And how did you, you know, listen to almost 7,000 stories? And she said, well, I didn't listen to all of them. That was part of it. She said, like, you've been immersed in this. So, mm-hmm. and you've been having to choose which stories to tell, which ones you can't. So then you read more, you absorb more. So her feedback was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I've, been, I've really allowed myself in this journey to think about what would be my wildest dreams. I think part of it would be some ways for youth to connect with the survivors and their families. Mm. And I'm not sure exactly how that would look, but... Mm-hmm. I think there would be a beautiful reciprocal relationship there of the young people and being reminded of the incredible courage of the human spirit Mm. by listening to the survivors and their families, but also for the survivors to uh, perhaps deepen the profound knowingness that that the country is in incredible hands with the young people we're raising up Mm. today. Do you think that's why you've written so many children's books? Is because you you needed the the medicine of hope and youthfulness and all of that? Do you think that sort of came in? Because you've been channeling the, yeah. the most adorable and wonderful <laughs> children's books for about the same amount of time. And I never ever thought. Well, first I never thought myself as a writer, but especially not for kids. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think part of it also is healing for me. You know, healing my childhood and healing um, not just mine, but also the wounds of my parents that came into my life Mm -hmm. in such big ways that I'm really working hard not to have come into my children's lives. Mm -hmm. But also thinking that books can be part of the medicine for children who are in homes right now that may not be tender, Mm. um, may not even be tender 5% of the time that if they can find themselves in a book and feel tenderness and feel hope and feel validated that's one of the pieces i love most about my heart fills with happiness mm-hmm. is all the little girls who come up to me and say i'm on the cover of your book <laughs> i love that one i know and that's the so illustrations good. by julie flat are just 
incredible in that book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, how often do Indigenous girls or girls of colour go into a library? How often do girls even Mm -hmm. go into a library or a bookstore and see themselves on the front cover of a book? Mm -hmm. Not very often. Mm -hmm. And your um, next children's book, I think, that got published is... um you hold me up. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Who were you writing for with um, My Heart Fills with Happiness versus You Hold Me Up? Wow, that's interesting because I I never even thought that I was writing for anybody. Really, My Heart Fills with Happiness came in one of our meetings, yeah. one of our circle meetings, and it had been inspired, but I was just playing with that notion about what fills my heart with happiness, and then it just came. And so it wasn't like I was strategically thinking about who am I writing for, and same with You Hold Me Up. It was more like, how can we have children realize how different ways of being can express reconciliation, mm-hmm. can express that reciprocal relationship? Mm-hmm. And so there are things in that book, like You Hold Me Up When You're Kind to Me, When You Respect Me, When You Comfort Me, When You Play With Me, When You Sing With Me. So they're not all things of being held up in times when we are hurting or need comfort. But they're also the the joyous things of when you play with me, when you laugh with me, when you tell me stories, that those are also all reciprocal acts of a relationship Mm -hmm. that is rooted then, I think, in wellness and of holding each other up with respect and dignity. And when we look at the history of our country, that, for the majority, has not been the history. What parts of uh, the legacy of residential schools are yet to be healed within you? Within me, uh, connection to the land, Mm. uh, because my mom was removed at birth, and so that is still a profound um, healing for me. chokes me up, actually, when I think about it. And uh, further connection to family, Mm. you know, more reunion with family on both sides of my parents' ancestry. A big part of it, I think, is that reconnection that because of residential schools and other legislative decisions and policies, my family has been so fragmented, Mm -hmm. which was part of the unwritten rules of all these rules. Mm -hmm. Let's break down the families because they knew how powerful Mm -hmm. that connection and that loyalty was. Mm -hmm. And the systems within those families that fostered... um, that fostered incredible abundance and I don't mean abundant I was looking for the right word because I didn't want to reflect on monetary Mm. but abundance in regards to the wellness of relationships and the Mm -hmm. wellness of relationships I mean to the land and to the water to the stars to those who have gone before the ancestors to each other to the animals that give up their lives so we can eat all of those abundant relationships Mm -hmm. are so profound Mm -hmm. you know in, you know, I was raised this way, and it's so interesting to me because when I look back at the real important teachings in my family, they, even though my parents had this incredible internalized racism and were disconnected in some ways from their teachings, they knew the teachings. Mm. So in my family, it was never about how much money do we have, but it was more about what can we give away. Hmm. And as a kid, I remember, you know, there was a period of time when we were homeless and my dad was still giving stuff away. And I remember thinking, we got nothing left in this tent. <laughs> like, what are you going to give away next? Hmm. And sometimes it would make my mom mad. And then I would notice that she was giving away a jar of peaches to somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So those are the pieces I think that it is that still familial healing in my family. Can you talk just a little bit more about the importance of the giveaway as a teaching? Mm-hmm. What is it about? Mm. For me, it's about... It, it really is about that reciprocal relationship that, that that spirit of generosity is saying that I have faith that I will always be taken care of. Mm. And thus, I can give you our, our last jar of peaches or yes, whatever it is, right? We've got these extra blankets. Let's go downtown. It's a cold night tonight. Let's make soup and go to thrift. Like whatever we need to do mm-hmm. to help take care of those who not, aren't able at this time to take care of themselves because who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, who knows? And I think that's a big piece is having faith that I'll always get taken care of. Mm-hmm. And it's true, Carmen. Out of the blue, when things are incredibly tight, a check will come in the mail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? What gives you faith as you look at your kids and, and you've talked a lot about um, being inspired by the youth and, and hope? I'm curious, when you look into society, adult society, let's say right now, is there any place where you're feeling like there might be some change or there might be some growing reciprocity? Like, where do you get your faith? Because, you know, when it, our, our, our children are the same age, 14 and uh, almost, and... Um, you know, it's a long time to wait for them to be legislators <laughs> and policymakers, you know. So what gives you faith in the in the interim time? Well, at the event on Tuesday night at the Greater Victoria Public Library and the Friendship Centre Library, the Victoria Native Friendship Centre Library did, there was over 200 people there, and the majority of them had silver hair. Mm-hmm. And that actually gives me hope because... When we look at who actually gets out to vote, mm-hmm. that is a huge part of the voting population today. And so it means then that they're voting for people who are looking to lead with their heart and their mind. Mm. And that they're, they're looking for people to lead where money is an important component in the decisions, but it isn't the only component in decisions. And to me, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Also because when you think about that generation have had so many years of being told through the books and through every source pretty much, almost a way of, I think about it this way, that because of legislation and policy, we have 150 years in this country of non-Indigenous people being told they were superior to Indigenous people mm-hmm. and Indigenous people being told they were inferior. And so when I think about a room of over 300 people, and probably 250 of them had silver hair, mm-hmm. or close to, I think we're changing things. Mm-hmm. Because that's the generation that was told that me as an Indigenous woman was inferior. Mm-hmm. And yet they came out to hear me. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's this time that, that things are changing. Mm-hmm. And of course it is the young people also. And things like, you know, um, our Member of Parliament here, Murray Rankin, Every single member of parliament in Ottawa got copies of Speaking Our Truth. And both Orca Books and myself have received numerous letters from MPs. Mm. Uh, Carol James, our deputy, uh, pre- deputy Premier and Minister of Finance, has distributed books to every single MLA in our province. Mm-hmm. 
I think that you know those actions say a lot because then it means those who are making the policies and the legislations are doing so from a different knowledge base. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for writing this book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Really, it's it's such a generous offering. Mm-hmm. It's deeply appreciated. Certainly in some corners of the country (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. my hope for the book is, as I said, that every middle school child will get it as a textbook. And uh, I definitely feel um, thankful. I know it took a toll on you health-wise and emotionally grateful to your wife Rhonda for Mm -hmm. holding space for you Mm because my goodness you brought forth uh, a very important record of our history that is I think much more accessible for many people than for instance reading for the 94 is it the 94 recommendations Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and you know I, I know of a few people who attended Uh, the days of uh, testimony and ceremony. Um, I know lots of people who, you know, read things online, etc. But to be able to sit and and hear the survivors' stories and see the faces and the pictures and and just have a very gentle... um, it's not meandering, but it's very it's very storytelling. You know, you're you're definitely weaving a lot of little threads. It's the kind of book you can just open up anywhere and get a little bit of it, and you know, get one story and leave. Mm-hmm. It's like this is going to be um, much more accessible and digestible uh, for a much greater range of Canadian citizen. Like you said, from nine to ninety. Um, I know lots of adults who mm-hmm. have looked through the book and said, uh, whoa, you know, I'm, they might have understood kind of the general mm-hmm. sense of like, oh, kids were taken, etc. But unless you've, um, you know, read some of the First Nations books, I'm thinking right now of Bev Seller's book, mm-hmm. They Called Me Number One, which I think is another mm-hmm. mandatory reading if you really want to kind of know about the day in, day out. But yeah, this, this book you've written is such a gift to mm-hmm. Canada really. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show, my Mm -hmm. friend. Always. (laughs) Okay, here's what you do now. If you don't already own Speaking Our Truth, you go to your local independent bookseller and you buy a copy for yourself. Uh, If you have children nine years or older, you buy copies also for their teacher, their librarian, and their principal. And when you go to parent-teacher interview night, you ask them in a very gentle and and genuinely curious way, how are you implementing the recommendations of the TRC into your curriculum and into school life this year? You ask them, do you have an Aboriginal cultural program or a counselor providing support for Indigenous students? And is that program being led by an Indigenous instructor? Your questions let them know that it matters to you. And ask your local independent bookseller to stock the book, Speaking Our Truth, and make sure that their early childhood section, the the board books and the middle year section, 
um, have lots of titles by Indigenous authors. There's some really sweet and tender ones written by Monique and also by other Indigenous authors like Richard Van Camp, David Alexander, Ruby Slipperjack, Melanie Florence, Jenny K. Dupuy, Christy Jordan Fenton, and Margaret Pokiak Fenton. There are lots of voices telling the truth to young people and their caregivers about Canada's history. I always like to give a shout out to listeners around the world and today I'd like to say a special hello and thank you to all my local listeners on Coast Salish territory, specifically the good folks of Vancouver Island and that includes the Tree Nation. Thank you Birch family for keeping us company today and the spruce and the hemlock, the maple, especially the cedar, the aspen and the nut family and even you holly tree family, there has been enmity between us but I thank you for your verdant steadfastness. And finally, just a heads up, you can now place your deposit online to come on Quest with me during the full moon in June 2018. Get all the details uh, and all the links of all the books and things that I mentioned today at my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>